You may be seated. If you would, turn to Job chapter 4. So I want to talk about friends, and I want to talk about uh, sandpaper words. And in some sense, this is going to sound like a, like a police lineup, you know. Do you know an Eliphaz? Do you know a Bildad? Do you know a Zophar? Do you have one of these people in your life? Maybe it be better to ask the question, have I been a Bildad? Have I been a Zophar? Have I been an Eliphaz? I'm not trying to start a lineup here. I don't want you to attach a face with the, with the, with the person in Scripture and says, I know I got some people like that that are sandpaper in my life. Maybe you do. And I pray that if you do, that you'll be gracious because I've been so far. You know, like I've been there. I've said things that I wish I could put back in, but they, they've just come out. Job chapter 4. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to, I want to talk about the friends a little bit. We're going to cover 14 chapters. That's not easy. I hope you brought lunch with you. Um, because it's going to be a while. But we're going to cover, uh, 10 chapters, 4 through 14. Is that 11? Whatever. My math. Um, and, uh, and we gotta go fast. But I want, I want to show you these guys. So Eliphaz is the first to speak. Maybe that says something about his personality. Um, I'll show you verse 2. He says, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Well, actually, you can't keep from speaking. It's called closing your mouth, you know. But but he can't keep from speaking. So I'll have you jump down, and I'm having you look at verse verse 12. This is Eliphaz. He says, Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, Dread came upon me in trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. I guess I don't have a word for goosebumps back then. But um, it stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even his servant, in his servants he puts no trust. And his angels he charges with error. Who is this Eliphaz? What is, who is this guy? Let's call him for the sake of talking together this morning briefly. Let's call him Eliphaz the Mystical. Eliphaz the Mystical. He says, I've had an experience with God. There was a spirit that came before me at night. Now before you say, oh, that's silly, you know, I, I want you to think like an ancient person, you know. God speaks to people in dreams. Didn't Joseph have dreams? Yes. You know, God does this. This is not unheard of. God speaks in dreams. And, and, and God creates covenants. You know, like think about Abraham who's like asleep and God's making this covenant, you know. And, and, and Abraham's out for it, you know. So, so, so God does these kinds of things. But here's Eliphaz's thing. He says, listen to what God told me. Nobody is righteous. He even finds faults with angels. And Job, you're no angel. Like, that's the implication, you know. Job, you're no angel. So this includes you, Job. You're not righteous. And so the boils and the dead children and the, and the calamity and the dead animals and all this, that's because of you. It's you, Job. Listen to what God told me. Hopefully you don't have an Eliphaz in your life. 
Because that's pretty harsh. But I do want to suggest that we take on Eliphaz's role at times when we try to speak for God into the life of the sufferer. And we have good intentions. You know, we say things like, well, you know, God works everything for the good. And so this is all going to turn out good. It's going to be good. But for the person in the throes of pain, that doesn't sound good. In other words, we want to talk about God's sovereignty right away, but what the person needs is not a sovereignty talk while they're struggling. Let me give an example. Uh, Joseph gets thrown in the pit by his brothers, right? And then he gets sold into slavery. You know, what if one brother came to the pit and said, Joseph, all things work together for good. We meant it for evil. God's going to use this. Have a nice night. You know, it's like that, that just doesn't work. In that context, you don't say that. We've all been elephants. I've been elephants. I've quickly appealed to God's sovereignty when maybe what I needed to say was something comforting. Eliphaz, in this case, is appealing to righteousness and, and Job not being righteous. But, but I'm just trying to apply it to what we hear today. Maybe in a more negative connotation, a more negative Eliphaz that I have seen today is like, uh, like, like a person last year who wanted to pray for somebody who was not well and they told that person, God's going to heal you right now. Like, God is going to heal you. Like, right here, right now, do you believe it? And then they prayed. And, and I don't think, I don't know that a healing happened or not. Here's the thing. I know God is big enough to heal right then. But I don't presumptuously speak for God and say that He's going to do it right now. I don't know that. I can't speak for God. I need to be careful when I do that. And so people do promise that. And when healing doesn't come, they say, well, you know, if your faith was stronger, you would be healed. And those are caustic, harsh words to say to somebody that's suffering. That is Eliphaz in 2018. That's what that is. Promising a healing that doesn't come and then blaming the person when it doesn't come for having a deficient faith. Eliphaz is alive and well today. But don't put up the mugshot, you know. I mean, I'm not saying people are trying to be evil, but, but this, is, this is what happens. Eliphaz. We've got to keep going. I wish we could spend more time on Eliphaz, but let's look at Bildad. If you turn to Job 18, or sorry, 8. Turn to Job 8. We've just skipped a few chapters. We're doing really good so far. Uh, Job chapter 8. Listen to what Bildad, not Bilbo, he's not a hobbit. Uh, listen to Bildad. Um, Job 8, verse 8. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? And then he quotes one of the fathers, he says, can papyrus grow where there is no march? marsh? Can toothpaste be put back in the tube? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? Yet, yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless shall perish. Now, I forgot to say this, so I'm going to say this now. But each of these guys is kind of coming up with, they have their own philosophy of suffering. 
and they represent different ancient ways of talking about suffering. You know, so, so the writer of Job is using each of these friends to represent different ways of looking at the problem of suffering. And so Eliphaz, the mystical, is definitely going for a God says this. I like that. Like, I look to the Bible when people suffer. You know, that's a good thing. It's just when you misuse it, it goes wrong. Here's, here's Bildad. Here's his background. We'll call him Bildad the traditional. Bildad the traditional. He says, listen to the wisdom of the fathers. Did you hear him say that in verse 8? Listen. There are wise people that have lived before you, Job. You know nothing. But those wise guys, they know something. So you gotta listen to them. Somebody sinned. He says, you know, he talks about the marsh, you know, and, 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 and plants. And he's, and he's kind of like, you know, can reeds flourish where there is no water? Water's kind of like, you know, the stuff of life. You know, not, things can't live without water. And so he says, clearly, you know, somebody sinned. S- somebody caused this, this curse on you. And it's, it's either you, maybe it's your kids. Earlier in, uh, earlier in chapter eight, he actually says, maybe your kids did that. Maybe your kids sinned, and that's why they, they died. And it's like, well, thank you, Bill Dad. That's very, very comforting to blame my kids and or blame me for my kids dying. Somebody sinned is what Bill Dad says. And he says, I can prove it because I can quote wise guys from the past. Because plants can't grow without water. And so if bad stuff's happening in your life, it's got to be because there's no water because you did something. Um... Sometimes we use proverbs and wisdom, wise sayings of the day in a good way, like this morning with the kids. Can't put toothpaste back in the tube. But sometimes we use them in very simplistic and uh, ways that don't really bring comfort at all. So I'm sorry you uh, your business went under, but you know when God gives you lemons, you make lemonade. That's That's the way it works. And we're quoting things that people say, you know, when God closes the door, he opens a window. That's my sermon for the day. That's it. If you would just take that and use it, you'd be all good, you know. And it's not that it's not that even these sayings are always wrong, because I do know God often comes in and gives grace and opens something up when something bad. Like, I understand that. But the person who suffers, it sounds very simplistic. And Bildad is going for, I just want to pull out something that a wise person said and kind of throw it at you, and, and, and you take it. And we've all got this. We all say, Mama always said, you know, and we, and we give the Mama thing, you know, whatever she said. Now, Mama was a wise lady, but we've got to be careful when we do this. Because it can sound like we've just got a little proverb for every situation. And that doesn't enter into the person's pain. It just gives them a statement. I, I don't think... The lemonade statement helps people that are hurting. Um, yeah, pithy sayings. We like our pithy sayings. Pithy sayings just tick people off. Um, let's say that. Um, next, Zophar. Where's Zophar? Let's, uh, uh, where, where am I at here? Zophar is chapter 11, 1 through 6. Would you look at chapter 11, 1 through 6? Zophar, 11. We're almost to 14. Look at how fast we're going here. Um, chapter 11, verse 1. Then Zophar, the Namathite, 
answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered? And a man full of talk be judged right? Ouch, you know, Job's talking. Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine's pure. I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. And he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then, and hear this, know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Man! Whoa! So far. Now, you might not have caught this, but um, it's not super clear in the text, but I'll tell you what Zophar is like. Zophar, we'll call him Zophar the Logical. Zophar the Logical says, he doesn't say listen to God. I mean, he appeals to God, but it's not just that. He doesn't say listen to the, the fathers, the wise people. He says, listen to me. Listen to me. I figured this out, and you deserve worse than what you got. You deserve worse than this, Job. The boils, the death, the destruction, the pain, the poverty. You deserve worse than that. Zophar's the guy um, that, that, again, I know I'm putting up a mugshot, but we do this sometimes, where we say, well, when I was suffering, this is what God taught me. So he must want to teach you the same thing. And then, we, and then we share whatever he taught us. Now, praise God that he taught us in the suffering. Like, praise God he brought us through our suffering. But should we take what we know and just give it to somebody else and say, this is for you too? Like, whatever God told me is certainly what he wants to tell you. Whatever he taught me, he wants to give you. Or when I suffered, I decided that I could get through it doing this. So certainly you need to do that too and you'll be just fine just like me. You know, it, it's, again, there's a nugget of truth there. Like uh, 2 Corinthians 1 says, we should comfort people after God has comforted us. You know, there is a sense where God has helped me, so i got to help you. God, is, God has brought uh, comfort and peace to my life, so I want to bring peace to your life. You know, th- th- that's true. But it's not a one-to-one correspondence of, he taught me this, and now I need to tell you that. i got to be careful that I don't look at someone's pain, diagnose it, and tell them why they're suffering. Am I the doctor? You know, Am I the one to give that word? Am I the one to, to simplify the complicated? Am I the one to take the mystery out of suffering and make it easy for them to understand because I've figured it out? Happens. I heard... Uh, um, I heard a president of a Christian university speaking one time to a group of pastors, me being one of them, and he had lost his son tragically. And he said, going to church in those days after I lost my son was incredibly painful. It was hard. Because everyone had a word for me that didn't really bring comfort. It just kind of tried to explain what had happened. People wanted to give an explanation. People wanted to say, God's going to work this for good. And he's like, I got to the point where this one guy started talking like that. And literally in church, I really wanted to punch him. Like, I, I, I felt like I am just about to take a swing at this guy. This, this is suffering. It's what people feel. And we are the sandpaper at times when we're not being thoughtful in how we're doing this. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to like a what do we do in a moment. But I want to check in on Job. And I want to ask the question, how's Job doing with all this? 
How's he holding up? Would you look at chapter 13? Job chapter 13. This is kind of our check-in. So, Job, how you doing with all these friends? What's going on in your mind right now? Okay. Chapter 13, verse 1. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What do you, what you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue my case with God. We'll take a pause there. Here's Job. I want a day in court with God. And I'm pretty sure that in this case, um, I'm the plaintiff. That, that's how Job sees it. I'm the plaintiff, and on trial are God's policies. You know, why does God rule the way he rules? Why does he allow this to happen? I'm the plaintiff. I've got a complaint. Job's friends tend to think that Job's the defendant. You know what I mean? You know, like he, he's the guy on trial. He's the guilty one. He's the defendant. What none of them know is what we know, what happened in heaven. It, it, it's not that Job is the plaintiff. He's not a defendant. He's like the star witness, you know? Like God is saying, have you considered my servant Job? He is like exhibit A. You know, like he's the proof that, that God should be glorified even if you lose everything. That's Job. But Job says, I want a trial. Give me a trial. Let's keep reading. Uh, now Job addresses his friends and he says, As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument. Listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God? Will you speak deceitfully to him? Will you show partiality towards him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Let me have silence and I will speak. And let come on me what may. We'll pause there. This is what Job says to his friends. You're clearly arguing for God's side and you're attacking me. And I'm better off with it without your help. So number two, he says, friends, I want a trial, but I don't need your help. Just take a step back. For all the reasons I just talked about, step back, please. Okay? Now, the thing Job says next is very interesting, 13 through 19. Uh, let me have silence and I'll speak, and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, you've heard this verse before, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words. Let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I will be silent and die. Here's how Job's doing. Job is basically saying, I will keep hoping in God, but I'm still going to argue my side. Now that statement, we'll go to number, sorry, number three. I will hope in God even as I defend myself to him. That is kind of an interesting statement because 
I like the first part. I'm going to keep hoping in God. This goes back to last week's sermon, right? What's the one requirement of the sufferer? Just keep holding on. That's it. Just keep holding on. And Job is doing that. I'm going to keep hoping in God. And, and he says, I have hope that godless people are not going to stand before God. But I'm going to be able to stand before him. But then he says, but I am going to defend myself to him. And this is where Job gets in trouble. This idea that I'm going to tell God that I don't agree with his policies. I don't like the way he's ruling. Suffering should not be happening on this scale. This should not be. This is where he gets in trouble. Now, I want to give you an example. Because what I just read to you is kind of like a light Job. But there's a caustic Job that you'll find as well. Can we put up Job chapter 9? I think that's, that's where it's at. Uh, check this out. This is Job talking about God. It is all one, therefore I say he, he's talking about God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hands of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? Here, what Job does is, he's saying God is mocking people that suffer. He's allowed it to happen, and he's mocking it. Has Job gone too far? Yes. He's gone too far. Last week when we had our sermon discussion, the question was asked, how do you know when you transition from like lamenting to God to complaining, like sinful complaining? Like, how do you know when you've gone from crying out for help to like sinfully you know, coming before God in a bad way? Um, I think... With a verse like this, if I start to question the character of God, I've gone too far. He is good. He's holy. He's righteous. All his ways are perfect. If I start to say that God has done wrong, if I start to say that he's mocking innocent people who have suffered, I've gone too far. And I'm sure that even in the wake of the calamity of last week, there are people who mock God in that. That say things that implicate him as if he's at fault. And this is what Job did here. God's going to talk about that. Like by the end of Job, God's going to address this. Now, Job gets a lot of things right. He doesn't get this right. There's a couple places in Job where you get the feeling like that should have stopped. Just stop. Other places where Job keeps hoping in God and, and, and keeps saying how holy God is and how great God is, he gets it right. Here he gets it wrong. Um, we ought to be careful how we talk about God. Look at the last verses of Job 13. We're looking at 20 following. He says, Only grant me two things, then I will not hide my face, hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread, the dread of you terrify me. Then call and I will answer. Let me speak in, in, to you and I will, rep, and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me, make me know my transgressions and my sin. Why do you hide your face from me? Why do you count me as your enemy? Why do you frighten a driven leaf and pursue a dry, a dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks. You watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. 
And I'll just point out to you one verse on here. Um, the verse 20. Grant me two things. Withdraw your hand. Don't let your dread terrify me anymore. And this is what Job is saying. We'll just summarize it here at the end here. Um, two things. Could you please stop with the torment and the terrors before we talk, God? I want my day in court. I, I want to talk to you, but I think I have an airtight case. I can gather my information together, but first, could you just stop with what's happening right now? Give me a little peace, and then I'll be able to talk with you more. That's what Job wants. And, and so we come to this point here at the end, and I just want to answer this question. After everything we've said today, here's my question. Job's in a hard place. He's struggling with God. He's got difficult friends. What does a friend really owe the person who suffers? What do any of us owe our friends when they're going through a trial? We could put the verse up. What is our duty? Job hits the nail on the head in the verse I'm going to show you. This is our duty. Job says, He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. He who withholds kindness from a friend. My answer to you when someone suffers is not to try to explain their suffering away and take the mystery out of it. I'm not saying you should take just any old Bible verse and throw it at them. Choose verses carefully. Because we know, right, the Bible's called a sword. Be careful how you use this. Because it can hurt when you use it at the wrong time or in the wrong way. You owe your friends kindness, compassion. You don't owe them the explanation for their suffering. You don't owe them uh, the way for them to get over it all. You owe them a little bit of comfort, a little bit of peace. And that comes from your kind words. That comes from your comfort. That comes from your presence. That comes from Job. You know, he had seven days with his friends where they just sat there in silence. Good job, friends. But then they started talking. And they needed to explain this away. Maybe we got to put our pride aside and not try to explain away the trials of our friends. And instead just enter into it with them in compassion. Just enter in. Again, because when you try to share with somebody and say, well, when I suffered, this is this way, and so surely it's that way, it kind of makes it sound like you've got it figured out. And you're not really getting close to them. You're still kind of staying at arm's length. Listen, I remember the first time I sat with someone who had to, who had to hear the news that his brother committed suicide. I was called in by the parents. It happened earlier that day. This young man was getting off of uh, track practice and coming home. And he had no idea what he was going to come home to. And I was sitting there. He sat down. And he, of course, he knew something was up because we're all there. It looked serious. And as his father spoke with him and shared how his brother had taken his life earlier that day, that young man just wept. And I think he wept, and I wasn't looking at my watch, but it felt like he wept for a good half an hour before anyone said a word. Like we just sat at the table, and he just cried. 
And when he calmed down, nobody said anything. We just, we just sat there. And he kept crying again and started again. And, and, and you know, everything in us says, I don't know if it's Americans or Westerners or the individualistic part of us, like, we want to give the answer. We have no answer. Maybe you want to know what I said to him when it was time to talk. I, I couldn't explain why. I hope I didn't use a verse out of context. I may have, but, but that's all I had at the moment, what was coming to me. But I talked about Jesus and the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Remember that parable where, where the, the, the servants go out to sow and someone comes in the night and, and they sow weeds in with the wheat and everything, you know, and it's just, everything's kind of growing up together and it looks bad. And the servants come to the master and said, who did this? Who did this? And the master says, an enemy did this. And that was my word for the young man. Why? Why'd your brother do that? All I could say in that moment was, an enemy did this. That's all I've got. That's all I've got. Satan's at work. He's a lion. He devours. That's all I got. And for that day, it had to be enough. But just to sit, just to sit with your friends is enough. Showing kindness is enough. This is what we're called to as a church. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes now?